This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 15th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Once upon a time, it was believed that racial segregation was almost purely a result of private action, redlining by banks, exclusionary covenants, and the like. Richard Rothstein, in his book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, details this separation and exclusion of black Americans' housing through explicit government policies from federal to local governments. We spoke last May. What brought you to this specific uh, topic? For many years, I'd been working on issues of school uh, achievement gaps between African-American and white children and writing about uh, the social and economic conditions that cause low achievement. Uh, Things like uh, poor health. uh, African-Americans have asthma at four times the rate of white children. And uh, if children have asthma, they're more likely to come to school drowsy or perhaps be absent because they've been up all night. <clears throat> and uh, when you get a child like that, um, they're going to achieve at a lower level than children who are in school regularly. And if you have two groups of children who are equal in every respect, except one group uh, has a higher absenteeism rate or a higher drowsiness rate than the other group, that first group is going to have lower average achievement. Okay, so how does housing uh, contribute to that problem? Well, when you take children like that who have a variety of social and economic conditions that um, impede their achievement, whether it's poor health or low parental education or um, other conditions, and you concentrate them in single schools, it becomes uh, virtually impossible to conceive of how those schools could achieve at the level of middle-class schools where children come to school well-prepared. Certainly good schools can do better with such children than poor schools can, but to think that uh, these things uh, don't uh, have a permanent effect on the average achievement of children in those schools is is silly. And the reason today that we have concentrations of those uh, children Uh, children like that in single schools and in single classrooms is because their schools are located in segregated neighborhoods. All right. So this brings us to your book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. That's a pretty uh, startling uh, title. But, But what were the government policies? I guess if you could identify what was the first government policy that began this process? The most important first public policy, the major public policies that segregated America took place in the New Deal. In 1933, the Public Works Administration began building the country's first civilian public housing. Uh, At that time, uh, of course, there was uh, housing built by the government on army bases, but the first civilian public housing was in the Depression under the New Deal. And the federal government built this housing on a segregated basis across the country in the North, Midwest, West as well as the South, segregating neighborhoods that had never been known segregation before. Uh, At that time, in the early 20th century, many neighborhoods in many urban areas were integrated simply because workers of different ethnicities and races had to be able to walk to their factories to work. They didn't have automobiles. uh, There was no uh, long-distance mass transportation, so they had to live in integrated neighborhoods. The federal government frequently demolished those integrated neighborhoods to build segregated public housing. Um, The great American um, uh, novelist, uh, African-American novelist and poet Langston Hughes writes in his autobiography that he grew up in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood. His best friend was Polish. Uh, He dated a Jewish girl in high school. That neighborhood where Langston Hughes grew up 
was demolished by the Public Works Administration and separate projects were built for whites and African Americans. This was not a case of whites happening to apply to one project and blacks happening to apply to another project. This was specifically designated segregated projects and this was done all across the country. That was one major federal program. The other major, and, and um, the, most of the federal housing, public housing, let me say before I go on, most of the public housing at that point was for white middle class families. African American projects were only an afterthought. Uh, in many places, these neighborhoods were demolished and whites only projects were built and no housing what for was, African Americans. What, what was the public rationale? What was the rationale for uh, structuring things in this particular way at that, at that time? Well, the public housing uh, administrator, whose name was Harold Dickies, who was actually a progressive. Um, the, the, his progressive instinct was in building any housing for African Americans. Most administrators would have built housing only for whites at that time. Uh, his rationale for building segregated public housing was he was going to respect the uh, uh, conditions that existed in neighborhoods before the housing was built. But in fact, that's not how the policy was carried out. It destroyed integrated neighborhoods, built segregated housing instead. Help me understand what that, what that means. Well, the, 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 the idea was respecting <laughs> the integrity well, of the neighborhood? The idea was that if, if, uh, if um, he was going to build public housing in a black neighborhood, it would only be for blacks. If he was going to build housing in a white neighborhood, it would only be for whites. But in fact, that's not the way the policy was implemented because so many of these neighborhoods were integrated. And so segregation was created by the public housing pro program. So in, in some ways, it was a misidentification of the uh, makeup of neighborhoods? I don't think it was a misidentification. I think it was an attempt to impose segregation where it hadn't previously existed. The entire uh, New Deal was a uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant leadership, which uh, you know, we've read a lot recently about how it uh, refused to admit refugees from Nazi Germany. So its, it's uh, assumptions about uh, racial superiority um, are, were reflected in its uh, housing programs as well. So how, do these, how does this continue then? If, if, you, have, if you have this uh, at one time, a, a destruction of neighborhoods that were integrated in favor of public housing that was used primarily by uh, black Americans, you know, presumably there were some local uh, – laws on the books that may have been uh, punitive toward uh, black Americans. But how do these policies continue? What was the impact you know, decades down the road? Well, the public housing, as I said, was mostly for white Americans, not for African Americans. Uh, public housing for African Americans was initially built over, uh, only as an afterthought. And the public housing was initially for middle class white Americans. And in fact, the, the early public housing of the New Deal uh, the agencies sent out social workers to the applicants' homes to make sure that they had good furniture and their children were well-behaved and they had marriage licenses. So this was a, a, a program for middle-class people who were homeless in the Depression. And then it continued after World War II because uh, during World War II, uh, there was no um, material permitted to be used for civilian housing construction. It all was directed to the war effort. So there was a big backlog of housing. In 1949, President Truman proposed a National Housing Act to vastly expand the amount of public housing, again, primarily for whites because there was such a backlog of housing. Conservatives in Congress who wanted to defeat the public housing program, not for racial reasons because as I say it was mostly for whites, but because they believed that the public housing was socialistic and uh, any interference in the private market should be defeated. 
So they came up with the strategy in 1949 of a poison pill amendment to the National Housing Act. Uh, this was promoted by Senator Robert Taft, Mr. Conservative in the uh, Republican Senate. The poison pill amendment was that from now on, public housing had to be integrated. And they knew that if um, the, this amendment passed, then the entire public housing bill would go down to defeat because if they could get liberals to vote for integration and join with Republicans on this amendment, then Southern Democrats would abandon the bill in its entirety and there would be no public housing. So liberals campaigned against the integration amendment in 1949 and the integration amendment was defeated. The National Housing Act was passed with an explicit rejection of the requirement that it be integrated. That's startling. Yeah, well, uh, as I say, the book is called a, a, a Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated in America. And, and of course, this was well known at the time. It's not the, it wasn't a hidden history. It's a forgotten history. And as a result of the 1949 Housing Act, uh, the mass uh, towers that we're familiar with that have come to now stereotype public housing, uh, vertical ghettos, were created, but again, they were created for middle-class families and separately for whites and blacks because that's what the Congress had authorized. So the most famous of these is probably the Pruitt-Igo Towers in St. Louis. The Pruitt Towers, there was two projects. The Pruitt Towers were for uh, African-Americans. The Igo Towers were for whites. And this happened all across the country. There were separate projects built for whites and African-Americans under the 1949 Housing Act as well. Well, very shortly after that, large vacancies developed in the white projects, long waiting lists in the African-American projects. The reason for this, and eventually uh, the, it became so conspicuous that the public housing authorities had to open all the projects to African-Americans. Industry left the central cities. The people in public housing became poorer and poorer, uh, fewer and fewer jobs, more unemployment, single family, uh, single parent households, and so forth. The reason for the wide number of vacancies in the white projects and the long waiting lists in the black projects was another federal program begun by the Federal Housing Administration, an agency that was established in 1934 in the New Deal. Many people are familiar with the Federal Housing Administration's practice of not insuring African-American mortgages in African-American neighborhoods. That was the least of what the Federal Housing Administration did. The major program of the Federal Housing Administration was to guarantee bank loans for developers of suburbs, mass production builders of suburbs, on condition that they sell no homes to African Americans. And the entire country was suburbanized in this way in the 1940s and 1950s. So this was a, a subsidized white flight? Yes, yes. It was a subsidized white flight and um, a prohibition on black flight. Uh, Af whites weren't fleeing African Americans. They were being subsidized to move into single family homes in the suburbs. Um, as a result, the African-Americans became the only residents of public housing. We developed the kinds of vertical ghettos that we're talking about today. I mean, probably the best example of this, and, and probably most of your listeners are familiar with it, is Levittown, uh, east of New York City. 17,000 homes built in the late 1940s. Levitt could never have assembled the capital required to build 17,000 homes for which there were no buyers on his own. He only assembled this capital with a federal guarantee of bank loans, and the federal guarantee had a condition on it, that no homes be sold to African Americans, and that every home had a deed that prohibited resale to African Americans. And this is the way the country was suburbanized. So you have these two interlocking programs, public housing 
which was initially segregated and then became solely uh, for low-income urban inner-city residents uh, uh, who were pr predominantly black because they were not permitted, prohibited from moving to the suburbs, and subsidized uh, white single-family homes in the suburbs. Uh, in the 1960s, it was familiarly called by public officials a white noose that the federal government had created around central cities. And these are the two major programs that segregated metropolitan areas in a way that they never would have been segregated by private action. What was the intent here? It, 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 what you're saying seems so startling and in, in a way uh, backward in, in uh, how these policies were adopted. adopted. It seems very problematic. It doesn't strike me as particularly progressive in any, in any way, shape or form. But you know, what, what were the public rationales? What were the private rationales for these, these additional programs? Well, as I, I said to you a few minutes ago, the, the private rationales was the assumptions of most uh, administration officials in the 1930s and 40s was one of racial superiority and that uh, African Americans were inferior and should be kept out of white areas. The official, the public rationale was that uh, if, if you had African Americans living in white communities, property values would fall. But that rationale was, was bunk because uh, what – in fact, the opposite was true. Because African Americans had fewer housing choices because of private discrimination elsewhere, they actually were willing to pay more for housing than whites would pay for similar housing. So when African Americans moved to uh, white neighborhoods, actually the property values went up and um, that was true throughout the country. There were many studies demonstrating this but the Federal Housing Administration uh, just ignored these studies and kept on repeating this uh, 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 mantra that property values would fall if African Americans moved into white neighborhoods. At what point do courts get involved here to say these, ki these kinds of programs are clearly unconstitutional? Never. Um, the civil rights community was almost entirely focused in this period on trying to challenge school segregation. And they devoted very little effort to challenging housing segregation. Uh, in fact, had the civil rights community made a priority of housing segregation, they would have accomplished more for school desegregation than they did by focusing on schools directly. There was one case, uh, actually on a companion case, a follow-up case, um, where housing was addressed by the federal courts and that was in 1948. The Supreme Court said that um, uh, uh, courts, state courts, and federal courts could not enforce restrictive covenants by ordering the eviction of African Americans who bought homes in white neighborhoods. There were thousands and thousands, I'm not exaggerating with these numbers, thousands and thousands of cases where courts ordered the eviction of African Americans who bought homes in white neighborhoods in violation of these deed clauses. And in 1948, the Supreme Court said the courts no, could no longer do it. Was this the Louisville, Kentucky case? No, this was a, a St. Louis case. It was called Shelley v. Kramer. And uh, it was a 1948 case. Uh, as a result of that case, the, the restrictive covenants continued. But instead of um, uh, requiring the eviction of black homeowners, they assessed the penalty on white sellers that was so great as to be greater than the value of their homes. And that continued for another uh, five years until 1953 when the courts finally said that these penalties also couldn't be enforced in court. But the, the Federal Housing Administration continued to discriminate in this way um, at least until 1962 when President Kennedy finally issued an executive order prohibiting federal agencies from subsidizing segregation. But it continued, as I say, as official policy 
of federal agencies up until 1962. And uh, it continued informally somewhat after that. In 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act, and it was weakly enforced. But mostly, it doesn't go on anymore today. All right. So, you know, having segregated all these neighborhoods it, fairly effectively to hear to your hear your telling of it there has that has to create some sort of inertia for how these neighborhoods developed how our attitudes about uh, public housing have changed Pruitt I go I'm thinking of Cabrini Green in, mm-hmm. in, in Chicago yes. as well uh, so what was the the social impact of having uh, those policies set in motion and having neighborhoods effectively segregated? Well, the effects of these policies continue today. And uh, the reason I wrote this book is to um, familiarize people with this forgotten history because we can't even begin to deal with it if we don't understand how unconstitutionally it was created. If we believe, as we do generally in this country today, that what we have is de facto segregation, segregation is simply uh, created by private prejudice uh, or individual choices, it's very little we can do about it because it was created accidentally. It's hard to think of how it can be uncreated accidentally. If we understand that it was created by explicit federal policy in violation of the Constitution, then it follows that we're required to have a constitutional remedy. One of the things I say in the book is letting bygones be bygones is not a constitutional principle. So you would argue for a, a, a policy solution to the problem that was created by the government? Yes, we, we need a we need to, we well, have a constitutional obligation to reverse unconstitutional policies. Well, I, get, I understand, I understand mm-hmm. reversing unconstitutional policies and uh, you, you say letting bygones be bygones is not uh, uh, an appropriate response, but what policies could you undertake that wouldn't be equally unconstitutional in the other direction? Well, they wouldn't be unconstitutional in the context of this history because if we understood that we have de jure residential segregation, then things that are presently considered unconstitutional because we think it's de facto segregation would not be unconstitutional. Racial conscious remedies would be constitutional, although we don't need racially conscious remedies. We need, uh, for example, uh, many suburbs today, predominantly or all white suburbs, have exclusionary zoning ordinances. Uh, These are ordinances that prohibit the construction of even single-family homes on on modest lot sizes or prohibit the construction of townhouses. I'm not talking about housing for poor people. They prohibit construction of of, uh, a diversity of housing types in suburbs. Uh, If we understood this history, we could abolish those or prohibit those kinds of zoning ordinances uh, and that would contribute somewhat to integration. Those zoning ordinances are actually fairly interesting. They were first developed... Uh, in the 1920s uh, predominantly uh, in response to a Supreme Court uh, order that prohibited uh, communities from having explicit racial zones. And so economic zoning was designed primarily as a way around that. Um, So it's not uh, unreasonable to say that uh, in the context of this history that exclusionary zoning ordinances that were designed in many cases explicitly, in many cases implicitly, to keep out uh, African-American and and, uh, Uh, other minority families uh, should be prohibited. Richard Rothstein is author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 